You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh, I'm the lead pastor here, and it is a joy to be with you uh, today to bring the message. We are continuing our Prophets and Kings teaching series, and like all of the other weeks in the series, we've got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to try and cover 1 Kings chapters 1 through 11 today. If you want to turn to 1 Kings, you can do that. All the verses will be on the screen. Uh, And as we get going, I want to ask you to consider this question. If you had one wish, what would you ask for? If you had one wish, what would you ask for? Now, don't get me wrong, uh, God is not a genie. God is not Santa Claus. I know maybe some of you have Amazon wish lists, or back in the day, we would actually write down on paper, you know, your wish list for Christmas, that sort of thing. And yet, there are moments where God asks us to ask him for something. I think of uh, the moment that the interaction Jesus had with Bartimaeus, the blind man in Mark 10, Mark 10, 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? So think about if God asked you that, if Jesus Christ himself asked you that, what would you ask for? Would you ask for money? Would you ask for health? Maybe an answer to an ongoing prayer request? Would you ask for success in your line of work? Would you ask for power? Would you ask for your children to come to know who Jesus is? Would you ask for personal renewal that you would experience just new life in Christ? Would you ask for revival in our day that we would see God do greater things in the days to come than we've seen him do in the days gone by? And I think the reason why Uh, The reason why God asks us to ask him is not so much to prove that he can answer our requests, because he can. He's all-powerful. There's no prayer too big for God. But I think it's this. What we ask for reveals what we truly desire. The things that we ask for. So think about your prayer time, the things that every single prayer makes it on that, that prayer list. Uh, The things that occupy your mind, those are the things it actually reveals a little bit of our hearts. And today, we're going to look at King Solomon, who is the third king in the kingdom of Israel, and he gets a moment like this with God, where he, God asks him to ask him for something, and it's kind of this famous moment. We'll get there in a few minutes, Uh, but King Solomon... Uh, is this, this third king, and he's really an amazing king. It's larger than life in some ways. And the way that I wanna talk about King Solomon today is I wanna look at the four different roles that Solomon plays, or maybe the four different hats he wears. For you, you might experience this, that we all wear different hats depending on the, re- the relationships we have. I'm uh, a son, I'm also a father, I'm also a husband, I'm also a pastor. When I'm out on the trails, I'm a runner. I'm also a blogger, believe it or not, right? I never thought I would say that about myself. Uh, but we, we all play different roles in different situations. And we're, we're gonna talk about the four different roles, the main hats that King Solomon wears. If you're taking notes, we'll jump in with number one. It's Solomon the king. Solomon the king. Uh, king David, we talked about last week, he had this rise to power to become this king who was a man after God's own heart, and then he had this really dark moment of sin. 
And in that moment, not only did God forgive him, God did forgive him in that moment, true repentance, he got true forgiveness, but also there was a consequence. And one of the consequences spoken by the prophet Nathan to David in 2 Samuel 12 is this. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, and behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. So there are sometimes in scripture where the consequence is uh, neighboring nations surrounding Israel are raised up and they're gonna go to war against Israel. But the pronouncement of judgment for David is that the sword will be raised up out of where? His own family. I'm not sure which one is worse. And basically the remainder of 2 Solomon, just to summarize the remaining chapters of 2 Solomon, sorry, 2 Samuel, we're talking about Solomon today. 2 Samuel is, uh, is essentially the sword being raised up against David's own household. You have Amnon, which is David's firstborn. He's killed by his brother Absalom because he slept with Absalom's sister. And then Absalom, he, he kind of tries to usurp David's power while David is still on the throne. So this isn't, you know, at the end of David's life. While David is still on the, the throne, he basically has a revolt from his own son, and David is on the run for his life. You remember the early days of David's life where he's on the run from King Saul. It's like that, but with his own son. He's, on the, he's, he's out of Jerusalem. He's on the run, and Absalom has the power. And eventually what happens is, uh, is Absalom gets stuck in a tree. There's these crazy details. He's riding a donkey, gets stuck in a tree. He's hanging there. And Joab, the commander of David's army, goes through and, and sticks him through with a javelin. And he's dead. So Amnon is dead. Absalom is dead. There's another man named Sheba. He's not from within David's own house. He's a Benjamite, Saul. King Saul, the first king, was a Benjamite as well. So he probably had alliances with Saul's family, that sort of thing. And uh, Sheba does the same thing that Absalom does. He tries to take the power, tries to take the kingdom from David. Joab chases him down. He's inside one of the Israelite cities. And a woman from the city comes out to protect her people. And she says, what do you want? Why are you attacking our city? And Joab says, we just want Sheba. And so they, she goes back inside, they chop off his head and throw it over the wall. I'm not making this stuff up, like this is in the Bible, right? So Sheba dies, and then by the time we get to 1 Kings, David is now near the end of his life. And it's that pivotal moment, the transition of power, who will be the next successor? Who will be the new king of Israel? And we know it's supposed to be Solomon, and yet another one of David's sons, his fourthborn, Adonijah, rises up and he has a, an alliance with Joab, the military leader. And he has an alliance with Abiathar, one of the priests who was faithful to David. And so now you have this kind of, you know, who's going to be the new king? And, and Adonijah is taking the power, he's asserting himself, he's doing that sort of thing. And then Solomon, he has alliances with Nathan the prophet, a significant player during the life of David. Uh, with his, his mother Bathsheba, obviously, and also with ben, uh, Benaiah, who was one of David's mighty men, one of David's closest soldiers uh, who, was, who was fighting for him. And essentially what happens is uh, Saul, you know, uh, Adonijah is there, he's trying to take the kingdom away, and Solomon, and this is, this is kind of shady stuff going on here, Solomon ends up sending Benaiah to be a hitman, and he kills his brother, 
and he kills Joab, the commander of the army. And he doesn't kill Abiathar, the holy man, the priest. He exiles him. And it's this bloody fight for power. And so how does Solomon do up being a king? Well, early on in his life, his rise to power looks a lot less like his father David, doesn't it? He's not patient. He's not showing mercy even to his own household, let alone his enemies. And uh, he, he looks a lot more like a king like the rest of the nations. Is that, that's what we get from Solomon at the very beginning of his reign as king. But it's not all bad. In fact, some of David's dying words, and this is in 1 Kings if you want to look with me, 1 Kings chapter 2, David charges Solomon with this. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. So he's saying, I'm about to die. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. That's a lot of synonyms for the same thing. As it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And so King David gives Solomon this charge to be a leader after God's own heart. And you do that by listening to the law of the Lord, meditating on it day, day and night, doing things God's way. And what we see here is Solomon actually does that. And the, the kingdom is established even further than it was during the lifetime of David. In fact, this, this ushers into, under the reign of King Solomon, the golden age for the kingdom of Israel. Israel would never be as powerful or as prosperous as it was since that point in time, the period of time when Solomon was the king. So what do we learn from this? We learn that there is a godly way and an ungodly way to do everything. God is not just, there's not just a godly way to, to worship or to do your quiet time in an ungodly way to do that. There's a godly way to be the king. There's a godly way to be a politician, believe it or not. There's a godly way to be a stay-at-home mom. There's a godly way to, to do whatever you do for work. There's a godly way to be a student. And for us to embody that, here's our practice. Do it God's way. Do it God's way. Whatever you do for work, whatever you do for recreation, seek to do it God's way. Listen to the law of the Lord. We have to know God's commandments. This is a, a consistent theme throughout our Prophets and Kings series. We have to know the law of the Lord. We have to know what God wants, and we have to do it. Do it God's way. In Colossians 3.17, Paul writes to the church this. Whatever you do, everyone say whatever. whatever. Not like whatever, like whatever, like anything, right? Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever you do in your life, do it God's way. Seek to do the commandments and the statutes and all of those things, right? Look for ways that you can do what you do for God. And when you do that, as is the case with Solomon, you will prosper in all that you do. Now, this doesn't mean that you'll prosper in the same way that God prospered Solomon, because Solomon became one of the richest people who's ever lived. He had this grand palace and all this power and all this influence. It's not necessarily a blanket promise that the same will happen to you, that you'll get a million dollars, you'll win the lottery if you live your life God's way. But what is true, and we see this promise even in Psalm 1, right? 
When you meditate on the law of the Lord and you follow God's ways, you will be successful. And what I wanna do today is share a, maybe a different version, a different definition of the, word, of the word success. I believe one of the best definitions comes from Pete Scazzaro in his new book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. He says this, success is becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way and according to his timetable. Isn't that a good definition of success? It's not necessarily success is having the most money or the most power or the most influence. Success is becoming the person God wants you to be and doing it in his way, not, not, not becoming the person God wants you to be, but, but circumventing his way of doing things, following God's will. And Solomon gets to experience a great amount of success and blessing and prosperity from God, and the same is true from us. It might not mean you have a palace or become a king or a queen or anything like that, but what it does mean is when you do life God's way, you get to experience God's blessings. You get to experience the blessings he has for you. That's Solomon the king, very effective leader of the nation. Number two, Solomon the wise. This is perhaps what he's most famous for. If you were to do a word association game and I say Solomon, you would probably say wise. That's what Solomon is known for, is being the wisest man, the smartest man uh, who ever lived. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5, God gives Solomon this, this blank check ask. It says this, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. Ask what you want, and I'll give it to you. This is really extraordinary, actually. Uh, if you remember Nathan the prophet, when David asked to build the temple, Nathan the prophet at night actually received word from the Lord and told David that it would be your son who would build the temple. And now here at night, his son is receiving this, this opportunity from God. Now, what's important to note is God doesn't give Solomon this opportunity because he's done anything all that great so far in the story. Like we saw, in fact, he was kind of shady in the way that he climbed to be the king, executing his own brother, that sort of thing, right? And so God gives him this opportunity to ask for whatever he wants, but it's not necessarily because he earned it. And it's important that we know that, that it's not because, oh, he's so good, he gets this blank check from God. But look at his response, and I think this really teaches us why God chose to ask Solomon to ask him for anything. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, Solomon said, give your servant, so he's referring to himself as a servant of God, therefore an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. So Solomon, notice what he doesn't ask for. Give me riches, give me victory over my, en my political enemies, Give me a long life. He doesn't ask for any of that stuff. That's just as important for us to note as what he does ask for. And what he asks for is, we would call it wisdom. In the ESV, it's translated in understanding mind, but really literally in the Hebrew, it's a listening heart. Isn't that a good definition for wisdom? A listening heart. A heart that can understand what the will of God is, and one of the reasons that, like to Solomon's credit, the reason why he asks for this is because he's humble enough to know what he doesn't know. He's humble enough to know what he doesn't know. In fact, earlier, what he says in his response to God, when God says, ask me what I shall give you, he calls himself a little child. 
He's not a little, he's not like 12 years old when he became the king. He, he's in his 20s, right? He's a 20-something-year-old. And yet he understands, I don't know how to go out and how to come in. That's talking about warfare. I don't know how to do warfare. I'm not like my father, David. I didn't have this long on-ramp where, you know, I had all this military experience or anything. And he calls himself a little child. And I would just say this, humility is a prerequisite for wisdom, A lot of people want to be wise. They want to be understanding. They want to even know what God wants for their life. And yet, they're self-proclaimed experts. To quote Spider-Man 1 from years and years ago, the bad guy says, you know, I'm somewhat of a scientist myself. And for us, there's so many people. I think about all the online chatter going on. I read one blog. You know, I'm somewhat of a politician myself. I'm somewhat of a medical doctor myself. There's a lot of people who have very strong opinions based on one article they read. And we're self-proclaimed experts. What if we adopted the humility of Solomon? And what if we said, you know, I'm somewhat of a little child myself. I don't know what I don't know. That's the posture of humility. And when we're self-proclaimed experts on everything, we have nothing that anyone can teach us. We're not gonna listen to God. We're not gonna have that listening heart to understand and discern the will of God. So what does God do? God gives him the wisdom. Here's a summary statement of the wisdom of Solomon in 1 Kings 4, verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, the breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He's the smartest man on the earth. And, uh, and because Solomon didn't ask for riches or victory or you know, political influence, God gave him that stuff as well, in fact. And it was the wisdom that allowed him to make the right kind of alliances. And he wrote uh, much of the wisdom literature, uh, many of the Proverbs. Uh, he wrote uh, the Song of Solomon in the Bible, right? Aptly named. Uh, many people think he wrote Ecclesiastes or much of Ecclesiastes. And so we even like, he wrote Bible books, right? And beyond the books, there's actually lost Proverbs of Solomon that we don't have record of, hundreds of different Proverbs that he wrote. In modern day, it would mean that you know, everything he wrote became an instant New York Times bestseller. And it wasn't just people in the religious community wanted to hear him. He wasn't just a bestseller you know, in the Christian nonfiction department. People from all over the world traveled to learn and hear the understanding and the wisdom of Solomon. Just one quick story, because it's so good, of an example of Solomon's wisdom. You might be familiar with this story. Uh, this is an example given of how wise he is. He has this tricky kind of catch-22 situation where two women in the kingdom, they come before him and they had both had children around the same time and they both lived in the same household. And at night, one of the children died, one of the babies died. And so the mother of that child took the babies who were sleeping next to their mothers and switched them. She's like, the mother will never know, right? These are kind of corrupt ladies anyway. So uh, she'll never know. And then you know, she wakes up in the morning and she's like, that's not my baby. And the lady's like, all oh, babies look the same. They're changing every day, right, whatever. <laughs> And uh, anyway, she's not buying it, and so they go before King Solomon with the one baby, two women, two moms, one child, and uh, they, you know, they explain the situation, and it's just each woman's word against the other one. There's no witnesses, there's no DNA evidence, there's no, there's no way to know. And they're like, so what do we do? You don't want to give the baby to the wrong mother. And so this is what Solomon says, and it's quite shocking. He says, all right, we'll bring the baby up here, we'll grab it by the leg, Bring me a sword, I'll slice the baby in half. 
And the moms are like, what? Like the people are like, seriously? I thought you were wise, right? And so what happens is the response of the two women, the mother whose child had already died, she has nothing to lose. So she says, fine. Like if I can't have my child, might as well kill her child as well, right? And then the true mother, her heart is revealed when she says, well, it would be better for the baby to stay alive and be raised by someone else than to die because I made, uh, I made my, my case. And so Solomon says, that's the true mother, give the baby to her, right? And that's like, that's great, right? So that's an example of the kinds of things, just so we understand the wisdom that God gives Solomon is not just book knowledge. It's not just so he could write some Bible books or he could do, you know, he could pen and paper knowledge. It's practical wisdom for how to govern the people. And that's really like, he wants to be wise, not so he can be known as the smartest man on earth. He wants to be wise so that he can make good judgments and so he can lead the people well. So here's the practice for us. Ask God for a listening heart. Ask God for a listening heart, for an understanding mind. Ask God for wisdom. I think one of the reasons why we don't always experience wisdom from God is maybe because we're not asking for it. We ask for signs from God. We ask for clarity at times. I'm not sure how much we actually ask God for wisdom. And yet wisdom is one of those things that God tells us he will give us when we ask. In James chapter one, verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, James has a few stipulations. He says we need to ask with a pure heart. We need to ask in faith. If you say, God, give me wisdom so I can get back at my neighbor, he's not gonna give you wisdom, right? If if you're gonna use that for evil purposes. And yet, the reason why I don't think we always ask God for wisdom is we think that God is an expert in spiritual matters, but he doesn't really know so much about how to be a good boss. He doesn't know so much about how to be a good husband or wife. He doesn't really know that much about parenting, to which I would say, God created everything. Created the universe. It's a better, he's, he's, he knows more about science than the smartest scientists on earth. He knows more about mathematics. He knows more about business. He knows more about finances. God knows everything. He is the source of all wisdom and understanding. That's why Proverbs 1, 7, the classic definition of wisdom is the beginning of fear of the Lord. If you wanna get to the beginning of wisdom, you have to have the fear of the Lord. I love how John Mark Comer puts it in his new book, Live No Lies. He says this, but consider this. What if Jesus knew the true nature of reality better than we do? What if Jesus wasn't just a good teacher? Or what if Jesus didn't just weigh in on our forgiveness of sins? What if we understood that Jesus is the son of God and he understands the nature of reality better than we do? We would go to him for wisdom in all things and in all areas. Jesus is the expert and you're not. And if we have a heart of wisdom to learn and to receive and ask from God, we will grow in wisdom just like Solomon. Solomon the wise. Number three, Solomon the builder. Solomon uses his wisdom primarily to build. And he starts this crazy trade, uh, trade routes and he's importing, exporting, getting stuff from all over kind of the known world at that time. And this really, truly uh, ushers 
Israel into the golden age where he increases wealth, the economy is booming, uh, he fortifies strategic cities in the land, he builds a palace, and the best, it's an incredibly impressive building. You can read that in 1 Kings chapter six. Uh, He imported these crazy limestone massive blocks. Uh, They use cedars from Lebanon. And when you read that, you know, those kind of descriptions, just know that means he's not just going down to Home Depot and getting like the discount rack lumber or whatever. Like it means he's getting the best of the best of the best materials. And the inside of the temple, if you thought the exterior was impressive, you walked inside and it's gold everything. Like not gold paint, actual gold overlaid on almost every surface that you look at. It's estimated today that Solomon's temple was not worth millions, not worth billions, it was worth tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars in our modern currency. I looked it up on Google this week, the most expensive building is $100 billion today. So this building is literally one of the most impressive and expensive buildings that has ever been built on planet Earth. Solomon the builder, was he a good builder? Yes, you better believe he was, right? So that's his legacy, but the significance of the temple uh, really spans beyond just an architectural significance or anything like that. The significance of the temple really is theological in nature. Look at what it says in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 2. The people, that's the people of Israel, were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. So this is before Solomon gets his wisdom, before Solomon uh, really built the temple. What happens is there's this, this tension. This is introducing us to the tension that the people, because they had the tabernacle, which is the portable place of worship, uh, they had that, but they didn't have this centralized in Jerusalem temple that Solomon would build. What they would do is they would go to what's called the high places. And the high places were probably literally, like actually elevated. They were probably in the hills. And if not there, they were, altars were built up from the ground, so they were taller places. And what they were is they were centrally localized places of worship for whoever. So the Canaanites would come, they would offer their sacrifices at the high places, the pagan religions used the high places, and that the people were also going there. And they were worshiping God, but they were worshiping God in a pagan place. You see the problem with that? It's a word called syncretism. Everyone say syncretism. Syncretism is a very, very important word because most of the kings of Israel struggled with syncretism. What syncretism means is it's blending religions. It's taking maybe a little bit of the true, a little bit of true worship of God and mixing it with pagan practices. J.D. Greer calls it hot dog faith. I think that's a really good, uh, really good picture. Uh, you, we might be tempted to call it like a smoothie or a blender, but smoothies is good, right? Syncretism is not good. It's like a cheap hot dog. And the manufacturer of that hot dog might, you know, they might say, well, there's some, you know, real meat in there. You're like, okay, there's some real meat. What's the rest of it, right? And that's what syncretism is, that the people, they're taking some of the parts of worshiping the true God and then blending it with all of these other sorts of practices, and part of the reason why is because they're not worshiping at a centralized location in Jerusalem. This is what Moses talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses two through five. He says this, now this is, this is generations before the people even took the promised land, right? This is the generation that would go into the promised land and all of, so there's, there's hundreds of years between these two events, but look at what Moses said way back then. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods. 
on the high mountains. He's talking about the high places here. On the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down their carved images of their gods and you shall destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Or we can say in that place. But you shall seek the place He's talking about the temple that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. Now, the tabernacle was already built by the time of Deuteronomy. So Moses understands that God had designated the tabernacle as the traveling place of worship for the Israelites while they were traveling, while they were more of a nomadic people group. But Moses knows it's a temporary solution. And long-term, the people will be settled in the land and God will choose a place. Well, guess what? Solomon's the builder, Jerusalem's the place, and he builds the temple. And so that is the significance. And the reason why this is important for us is because people will always find some place to worship. Or we can even say people will always find something to worship. I love this quote from Tim Keller. He says, you don't get to decide to worship. Everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what to worship. So kind of our modern idea of someone who's an atheist doesn't truly exist. They may not believe in God, but they're still worshiping something. Sometimes people worship themselves. Sometimes people worship pleasure. Sometimes people worship some of those worldly kinds of things. And we stand at a really interesting moment in our, in our cultural moment right now where I believe a danger we have is similar to this danger of syncretism that the nation was facing before the temple. The danger is the privatization of Christianity. It's the idea of it's never been easier to have a me and Jesus relationship where there's no corporate community There's no spiritual authority and leadership with anyone else, and it's just me on my couch watching whatever sermon that I wanna watch and however I feel at that particular moment. And when that happens, the danger of that is Jesus always calls us into community to be a part of an embodied believers. The danger is syncretism, where we can take our favorite parts of the Christian faith and blend it with all of the best that the culture has to offer. So what is the practice that helps us fight against that syncretism? Go to church. Go to church. I mean, you're here, you did it, so good job today. But for so many people, and, and this is, there's been a lot of like theory, and like what's gonna happen with church and gathering, like corporate gatherings, are, they, are those days gone? This is why I don't, I don't believe that no matter what church attendance trends look like in the years to come, in the decades to come, that going to a worship gathering will ever be obsolete in our faith. The reason is that it's part of God's design. The word church in Greek New Testament is ekklesia, and it literally means a gathering, an assembly, or a congregation. And I know that there's kind of this resistance. Well, you know, you'll hear sometimes, and it's partially true, people say, we don't go to church, we are the church. That's kind of true, but can you be the church if you never go to church? Can you, by yourself in your living room, be the church? And I would say you cannot. 
If you never are, and it doesn't just, I'm not talking about the church simplified as only what we're doing right now, right? The church is when you gather with your life group and you confess your sins to one another and pray. The church is when you and other believers go and serve the community. And this is church. What we are doing right now, the, the local Sunday gathering of believers, I would say it like this. We can't be the church if we never go to church. We can't do it. We're missing something. I'm not saying you can't be a Christian or your sins can't be forgiven. Don't, don't hear me wrong. We're not getting into atonement theory right now. What I'm saying is it is impossible to be the church by yourself. We have to be an embodied group following Jesus. And so I would just say, I mean, you're here today, but I would just say for you to consider what's your next step in being more involved in the body of believers. It could be joining a life group. It could be joining a serving team. It could be, maybe today is kind of a, a one-off where you maybe have just started returning to in-person worship gatherings. Maybe you would make that a priority moving forward because the local body of believers is one of the things that helps us remain faithful to following Jesus and not blend into the syncretism of the culture. That's number three. Number four, Solomon, the man of God. We've talked about Solomon as a king. How did he do? He was very effective as a king. We've talked about Solomon as wise. How did he do? 10 out of 10, extremely wise. We've talked about Solomon as a builder. Was he a great builder? Yes, right? Can we fix it, Bob the Builder? Yes, we can, right? That's Solomon. He could do it. How was he as a man of God? This is the most important hat that he wore. How was he as a man of God? Well, at first, it seems like maybe he would be great. He would follow in the footsteps of his father, David. Look what it says in 1 Kings 3.3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father, dot, dot, dot. So at first, it's like, that's great. He's gonna be great. He's very promising. And then the second half of verse three, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So why was it that the people were visiting the high places? Well, as the leader goes so go the people. And this syncretism that we're talking about that was so toxic to the nation, it trickled down from Solomon himself. So he might have been very effective, very wealthy, very influential, very wise, but that wisdom, the head knowledge, didn't always translate to obedience in his heart. And in fact, we see warnings, once again, from Moses. Moses knew, he prophesied that the people one day would want a king like the other nations. And we have three warnings. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16 through 17, it says this, only, this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel, only he must not acquire many horses for himself, this will make sense in a second, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. We're like, Moses, what's the deal with horses, okay? There's nothing inherently wrong with horses. Okay, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he require, uh, acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So here, here's the, the prohibitions. Three things that warnings, the king of Israel should not do this. Get horses, acquire many wives, or have excessive wealth. And when we think about what are those things represent, we think about the, the three classic pitfalls, the three, I would say the three biggest dangers for leadership is sex, money, and power. Have you heard of that before? Those are like the three, like if there's high profile leaders who fail, ask the question, which one was it? Sex, money, or power? Those are the three classic pitfalls of leadership. For Solomon, wives, we had 
Money, excessive gold and silver, and power is what horses, why would you want horses as a king? So you can have power, so you can have military power. Specifically, going back to Egypt, that was the place of slavery for the Israelites, and Moses says, do not go back there. Solomon's first wife, by the way, was Egyptian. So we see this like alliances formed with the former slavery. Let's see how Solomon did. So that's all a little bit of groundwork to help make sense what Solomon did. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 27, and the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. So you have silver coins. Ah, I don't need, you drop it on the ground. It's not even worth my time to pick it up because the, the nation is so wealthy. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses, it seems random, right? Not when you read Deuteronomy 17. His import of horses was from Egypt. And then in verse one of chapter 11, now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. So the daughter of Pharaoh is his first wife. And then we have the Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel. So not just he loved many women, but many foreign women. And God had said this, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they, uh, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. So what did Solomon do? He clung to these women in love. And what Solomon ends up doing is he ends up using the wealth and the prosperity God had given him as a blessing to build the temple, to build the royal palace. He uses that to fund building shrines and altars to foreign gods because of the women that he loved. So did Solomon love God? Yes. He also loved foreign women. He also loved excessive silver and gold. He also loved horses. And so it's not so much that Solomon didn't love God, it's that Solomon loved all these other things at times more than God. They rivaled his love of God. And what happens is Solomon's life, he fulfills all three of those prohibitions from Deuteronomy 17. And what happens is at the end of his life, he ends up looking a lot more like Pharaoh than he does looking like his father, David. In fact, he's even using slave labor from surrounding nations to do some of these building projects uh, that, that he was responsible for. And you have this moment where Ahijah, who is another prophet, uh, is, is sent to Jeroboam, this man who was working under Solomon. And Ahijah, I don't know if you remember when Samuel went to Saul at the very end, when Saul's days were done, he ripped Samuel's robe. You remember that? Well, Ahijah goes to Jeroboam, this, this worker for Solomon, and Ahijah rips his robe and, or his cloak in 12 pieces, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he gives 10 of them to Jeroboam, and he keeps two for himself. And he says, the kingdom is gonna be divided. And that's what we're gonna talk about next week, this prophetic moment, where the, the ripping of the garment signifying the end is near. So what can we learn from that? This is, this is more learning from a negative example of Solomon. You wanna be wise like Solomon? You don't wanna be following God like Solomon because Solomon failed in many ways in this respect. The practice for us is to put God first, to put God first. If you would say, I love God, but then you love something else and that love for that something else rivals God, well, that is an altar. That is an idol in your life that needs to be torn down. And for us, we have to remember what Jesus said the most important commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. So there would be no other love in our lives that rival our love 
for God, to put God first. And I would just ask you, is God first in your schedule, in the way that you spend your time? Is God first in your plans, in what you think about your life for the future? Are you considering what God wants first? Is God first in your finances? Think about the, the, thing, the resources, everything that God has given to us. Is he first? And if he's not, put him first. And if there's other things that you love that they're rivaling your love from God, those things need to be torn down in our lives. And the way that we put God first, the reason we do that is because God loved us first. He deserves it because he loved us first. I think about Solomon. Before Solomon did anything for God, before he built these impressive buildings for God or anything like that, way back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, this is on that moment where David repents of his sin with Bathsheba. It says this in chapter 12, verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. So this is where it all begins for Solomon. He's a little baby. And the Lord loved him. Isn't that interesting? And, a, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedediah because of the Lord. So Solomon had a nickname from God, Jedediah, and Jedediah means loved by God. And that was before Solomon accomplished anything, as he was loved by God. And I think the lesson for us is before we enter into even those good works that we were created for in Christ Jesus, before we do anything good for God or offer anything to God, God loved us first. In 1 John 4, 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. And while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. While we were still enemies of God, God you wanna know how much God loved the world? That he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting Life that Christ Jesus is the Son of God, that spotless lamb who never sinned and died in our place on the cross and raised back to life three days later so that we could be raised up into a new life. And all of that work was accomplished before we even turned and stepped foot towards home. So I'm here to tell you today can be the day that you respond to the good news of the gospel by accepting Jesus as your leader and forgiver. And if you wanna, if you wanna do this ultimate you know, moment of putting God first, Maybe for you that moment is baptism. Baptism is the step that Jesus instructed us to take, essentially to say, I'm gonna put God first. I'm gonna go under the water and the person that comes up out of the water is a brand new person, born again to follow Jesus. I'm gonna put God first for the rest of my life. And if you wanna sign up to get baptized, I know I've been saying this, the baptism is almost done. I promise, it's almost done. Uh, and, and we would love to celebrate with you. You can find out more information about baptism or you can even sign up to get baptized at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. Even if you're here today and you've already put your faith in Jesus, but there's other areas in your life, maybe those are, those are idols in your life, I would encourage you, tear down those idols. Tear down those things that rival God's attention, your love for God in your life. We can put God first because he first loved us. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.